You're listening to Wolf Spirit Radio. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for being on the Max Joe Show. I want to introduce first uh, my wife, Nicole, co-host, and uh, Jennifer Martin, co-host. And I got a lot of co-hosts, believe me. I don't know why, but I do. I like them. I like to be around beautiful ladies. So, uh, well, not you, you. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, you is also here uh, from uh, London. Uh, I want to uh, thank uh, my producer, uh, Russ, uh, from Michigan, and Vanessa, my uh, Sergeant at Arms moderator. So don't play, don't play on, uh, with me on the show, especially uh, in, the, in the chat room. Okay? I got all kinds of protection. Uh, I know you guys, uh, I, I thank for the people in the uh, Wolf Spirit chat room. Remember that this is uh, a listener-supported station. Please donate. And this is how we get the real truth, Seekers. That's going to be on my show in the next few minutes, but I got to say something like I always do. And I want to thank also the people in all over the world, Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, friends of mine in Russia, and, uh, well, I got to mention them too, uh, China, India, uh, and my buddies down there in the south, down under in Australia, South America, and all the United States. Thank you in Canada. Canada, thank you. All my buddies and friends in Canada. You'll see me there very soon. I promise. Okay. Anyway, uh, I want to thank everyone for being here. And uh, my guest tonight is Stefan Sidoni. And uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Sidoni. Sid, wait a minute. Sidoni. Right? Sidoni, okay. like, like Ron Zoni with an S. <laughs> uh, okay. Sidoni. Okay, uh, I can't pronounce name. I have problems with everybody. Anyway, I want to thank all of you. And uh, I said that already, didn't I? Okay. Uh, uh, I want to well, apologize for something. I, I, last week, I didn't come in here and do a show. I was very, very sick. And uh, I, w I was hit with some black mole that hit me in the face and um, I almost, it knocked me down. I didn't get hurt, but uh, I did get home. I, I couldn't do this show. I was so sick and I apologize for not being there. Okay, so uh, I want to apologize to Jennifer too. I'm sorry about I didn't communicate it with you. All right, for the show. Uh, go ahead, uh, Stefan, and pick your piece. Whatever you want to say, go ahead and say it. You're on the Max Steel Show, and there are no barriers here. Okay? So you I'd like to begin, Max, and just thank all of you for having me on the show, yourself, your wife, uh, and uh, Jen, Jen Martin, who is a longtime friend of mine. And I want to thank you, Jen, personally for uh, sticking with me throughout these years, thick and thin, and allowing me the opportunity tonight to uh, – 
let America and the world know that uh, what really has been going on um, the last two decades. So I, I, I plan to uh, to go over that, and I'm I'm going to use a format because uh, I was writing a different book uh, right now, and uh, as I did the uh, the outline for the show, I realized that I would write it in like uh, kind of chapters or segments and I would make it quick and, and painless for everyone listening to stay with it and tentative rather we stay on course and on point so what I will do is I've got at least 13 segments so uh, each segment probably three to five minutes maximum but at the end of each segment uh, we if there's questions that you have pertaining to what I'm speaking of I'll address them and thereafter we'll move on and uh, in the second hour, I believe we'll be able to have enough time to uh, the chat room and all the questions you may have based on the amount of information that I'll share. There's quite a bit. And after thinking about it, I wanted to do it in a way where I could grandfather in, so, you, so to speak, and allow everyone to be able to visualize what I'm about to say. So I'm going to begin here now. And in part one here, I'll talk about September of 98. In September of 98, I was single, and I was going to Montreal, Canada. I was going to, to hang out and party, so to speak, and uh, enjoy the, the nightlife in, in Montreal. So I, I drive to Montreal. It was a rainy night in September of 98, and uh, nobody was out that night. I just drove from uh, New Jersey uh, straight through and uh, had one drink in uh, the Saint Laurent Club that I was in, and decided, you know, I'll go back to uh, to my motel, which was in uh, Pont Champlain, across the bridge, and I would resume, you know, my uh, my two-day vacation there in Montreal after having a, a good night's sleep. I figured the weather would clear out the next day. As I got in my car, it was raining profusely, and uh, I was stopped by a police sobriety check. So I roll my window down, and uh, they asked me a couple questions, and no big deal. They they waved me on, and I. I make a left onto a street heading back towards the bridge. I must have got eight blocks in when a, a white Arrow Star van started beeping its horn at me. So I look over. It's hard to see because it's raining. And uh, I didn't pull over because I didn't know who it was. I'm in a foreign country. And next thing I know, the Ford Arrow Star van motions me over and they almost sideswipe me, forcing me onto the curb uh, on, on a side street. So I stopped my car and I'm looking. I said, is this out of the twilight zone or, uh, you know, something eerie, you know, from, uh, from beyond? And some guy walks up to me and he's wearing a uniform, a military uniform with a riding jacket and boots. And he's got like a beret on. He looked like Curtis Sliwa, the guardian angels in New York, if people can understand, I'll paint that picture. And he walks over and he says to me, uh, Muhammad. And I look at him, I roll the window down, I says, my name's not Muhammad. I says, I don't know who you're looking for, but you've got a case of mistaken identity. All of a sudden, he put a frown on his face, and he motions to the van, and another fellow gets out of the van, and next thing I know, he's pointing an automatic weapon in my face. So I look at this, I go, what the hell is going on? So the man says to me, uh, can I see your identification? I says, only if I can see yours first. I says, I just passed the police sobriety check. I know who the Montreal police are. and You guys are not, you know, uh, working for the, the, the Montreal police. Who are you? So reluctantly, he goes into his jacket and he pulls out his ID. I look at the ID and it has a picture of himself and the Israeli uh, 
Mossad emblem on it with the menorah. So I realized these guys were Israeli agents. So, so now I pull out my ID and I show him mine. And he says to me, oh, so you're from the United States. Because uh, your license is New Jersey. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm an American. I said, I'd like to know why are you stopping me and calling me Muhammad? So he looks at me. He says, well, we're looking for terrorists and you fit the profile. I, I said, I fit the profile? He says, well, since the 1998 incident with the coal bombing at sea, we're looking at everyone who comes into the country uh, as foreigners who, who, may, who may be terrorists. I looked at him. I was got annoyed. I said, terrorists? I said, I said, you guys appear to me to be the terrorists. I said, why are you pointing this weapon in my face? So he says to me, well, can we search your car? I said, only if I can watch. So I get out of the car, and that's ringing like you can't believe, Max. And I'm saying to myself, uh, I'm going to get killed here tonight, it looks like. And, but I'm not going to go down without a fight, you know. I'm taking one of these guys, uh, or if not both of them. And uh, so that was my mindset at that point. So they look in my car, and they don't find anything. And, and one of the guys says to me uh, in, uh, in his really uh, accent, can you pop the trunk? I says, why do you want to go in my trunk? He says, because we want to see your luggage. I said, well, I don't have any luggage. And he goes, well, where's your luggage? I said, my luggage is back in my motel in, in Brasad, where it should be. So I popped I pop the latch, and the fellow with the machine gun goes over. He looks through the back, and he motions to the other man. He goes, there's nothing there. So at that point, I'm standing with the, the, the guy who initially uh, came over to the car. So I said to him, I said, I'm not going to forget your face. I said, and I don't appreciate being stopped here and at gunpoint. I said, I don't know who you are. Says the Israeli Mossad. I said, you guys are operating illegally. And when I get to the border, I am going to tell U.S. Customs what just happened tonight. So he laughed at me and he said, well, they're not going to believe you. I said, well, I'm going to tell my story. I says, I hope that you and I don't ever face each other again. I said, because I don't care if you, your buddy's got a gun in my face. It won't be pretty. I said, we don't take prisoners where I come from. I said, I'm from Brooklyn. I will kick you to the curb, and I'm not going to forget what you just done to me. So he says, well, we're going to leave now. I says, good. He says, just wait here until we leave. So I was raining. I get back in my car, and I'm, I'm, right now I'm drenched wet at this point. And I sit there and watch them pull away from, from the curb. At that point, I realized that my life had changed because I knew that I would have to go back to my motel, and, which I did, and I, I, I paced around all night. I could not go to sleep, Max. I was just livid about how could this happen? Who are these men? So the following day, I went and uh, drove right to the U.S. Customs, and I told U.S. Customs what had just happened. And U.S. Customs said, well, that shouldn't have happened. I said, well, it did happen. I says, I have a good, you know, uh, recall of who the men were, and, uh, and I could point them out if need be. So they said, well, we'll go ahead. We'll check this out for you. But, you know, you can go back into the United States. So that night I'm driving back in, and I noticed right from Jump Street as I got back into the U.S. there, there was cars that were following me, and they were like, pulling off. One followed me for like five, 10 miles and then someone else would follow me. But I blew it off. I said, you know what? 
I said, this is too early for me to get paranoid about this, but it was something that I was going to just keep in my memory bank about like what just happened, but I was going to watch my back and uh, being, I was by myself, you know, I realized the only thing I had was my wits about me and my cell phone there. And uh, so driving back home, which was a long way, I had to drive at least 12 hours to get back to where I was going. I just did my best to stay awake until I was able to get back into uh, New Jersey. That's pretty much what I'll say here in part one. Any questions? Hmm. I have a question, Stephen. Uh, when you said you can identify these guys, um, did that kind of put any kind of red flag out with the uh, border people? I mean, did, did you notice any kind of reaction out of them? Well, yeah, I did, I did, I did see a reaction out of the person who was questioning me. And uh, I told them I could identify them. But as I said, they then would have to do their investigation and they would follow up. So I, I left them my number and everything, but I never heard back from, from the Border Patrol regarding that. Yeah. Now, right after that, in October, about a month later, I noticed that my phone was tapped. And then there was a virus sent to my computer. And uh, then I was followed to work every day. And I was driving probably about 50, 60 miles to go to, to, to different places uh, throughout the state because I was a, an account rep for a company. And my job was to oversee uh, all the places that we had workers. And uh, so I could be one day in one area. And at the end of the day, I could be 100 miles away. And it's pretty easy for me to see that there were people that were following me to different warehouses when I was going. And I realized that something was different in my life and I just didn't know what it was yet, but I soon would. When the World Trade Center attack happened, I was working for a company in New Jersey and uh, we got to see the second plane you know, hit the building. And when that happened, we just sat there and we were just like shocked at what we, we believe, what we thought. And I say, what we thought we saw. Uh, right after that, two days after that, mysteriously, my boss says to me, because of the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center, now, mind you, I worked in New Jersey, that I was being laid off. I said to myself, what do I have to do with the terrorist attack on 9-11 that I should be laid off? You know? And I was making decent money at the time, and I couldn't believe that this was the flimsy excuse that I got. So for the next month and a half, I was looking for employment. And while this is all going on, we heard all the, you know, the rhetoric about 9-11, you know, it was done by, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden and all. And uh, the jury was still out on that at, at that point. So while this is going on, um, I'm looking for a job. So luckily I found a job uh, in November for a company. It was a light industrial company. And the interesting thing about it was that this company was contracted to go out to the uh, ground zero and do the cleanup for 9-11. So when I started working there, I spoke to some of the workers who told me that the ground was so hot that their steel tip shoes bottoms had melted and they refused to go back to ground zero 
And after one week of working at Ground Zero, many of the workers who refused to return were getting respiratory problems, and then the job assignment was canceled com completely, which I, you know, now a red flag went in my mind. Well, how can the ground be that hot, you know, uh, three days, four days, five days later? So I realized it had to be chemical explosives of some kind to be able to cause that sort of a reaction. A fire doesn't burn that hot. It never has in history, and I defy people to say that it did. Then in um, December of 2001, I'm watching a, a, a report on Channel 7, and the reporter was Peter Jennings. And at that time, he showed that the FBI were investigating five men who they believe were persons of interest surrounding the attacks of 9-11. The FBI was asking for information from the public to find these men who had entered the U.S. border to Canada, Plattsburgh, the same border that I came through. When they posted the photos, two of the five men who had stopped me in 98 were in those photos. After seeing the photos that were displayed on the TV screen, I go, wow, I can't believe it. I would see these two men again, the same men who stopped my car in Montreal, Canada. Now, well, Max, you know, you were a military guy. If somebody puts a gun in your face point blank, are you going to remember their face? Of course you will. Not only that, I, yeah. I, I, I know how to take the gun away from him before he even puts it in my face. I, I'll take it off his hand very quickly. Well, you should have been with me that night. I would have. I, I would have taken it away from him. Believe me. So now I see these men, and I turn to the person I was with, and I said, I can't believe this. This is what I've been talking about for three years. You know, that's been in my head. I needed to get to the bottom of this, and now, luckily, I get to see this broadcast. So the following day on December 28th, 2001, I contact the FBI office and informed them that I was absolutely positive that I could identify two of the five men who were Israeli Mossad secret agents. The FBI blew me off for us, I mean, uh, Max, and told me that I had to be mistaken. So I said, no, I'm not mistaken. So I then called another FBI office in a different state. And now I'm getting really upset because I know what, I'm, what I saw. And here I was trying to be uh, someone who would not only see something, say something, but wanted to do something often. And I was noticing that the FBI was deliberately, you know, uh, stonewalling this right from the get. So in January of 2002, I found a social media site called GoOff.com, and I contacted the webmaster of it. Her name was Carol Adler, and right now she's, uh, she's involved with Dandelion Books. You could probably buy a book from her still on the Internet. So not, after, not long after I sent Carol um, my account of the events that I believe were connected to the 9-11 terrorist attack, and shortly thereafter, a couple of days later, she got back to me from a call from her. And she said that she was going to put my story on her website. As soon as she put it up, she gets a phone call and she calls me again, saying from a high-ranking Israeli U.S. politician who told her to drop my story from her website or she would find herself in hot water in the government with the government of the United States. They would close her business. So she said to me that uh, she believed me. And she said she would give me a name and email of someone in Canada who I could contact that was interested in following up on my story. 
Within a week, the Canadian official and I were in contact. He promised he'd follow up my story. In the second week of February, I get an email from the Canadian official that he was threatened by a high-ranking Canadian official in his government and that pursuing my story would be hazardous to his career and possible health. So in March of 2002, I was attacked at work by a man who was supposedly seeking employment at the company that I was working for. Now, the timing of this event could have been more than a coincidence, but I wasn't sure yet. In April of 2002, my home computer again was hacked, and many of the files and photos that I had downloaded from the, uh, from the Internet were lost. But fortunately, I had some copies on an external hard drive and a USB thumb drive device, but I realized that I must have had something that somebody wanted very desperately. I, I must have had some damning evidence. Uh, photos of the two men from the FBI website account, I had downloaded that, and I, I had that, and I believe that was explosive uh, in nature for the FBI because they were denying it completely. So right, a, right after this, there was an article in the paper, in, this, in the uh, uh, Bergen Record, how the, uh, the, uh, the police of New Jersey, the state troopers, arrested men with explosives who were planning on September 11th to blow up the Holland Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, and the George Washington Bridge. This was reported, and there was also men in Liberty State Park that were filming the event just before it happened, and they arrested them too. So they had forewarning that this was going to happen. The, uh, the men were detained for 45 days by our government, and then some high-ranking Israeli official got them released and sent back to Israel without being charged with espionage because they had found maps with them that they were definitely going to blow up the bridges and tunnels. And when questioned about it, one of the men told the state troopers, well, you know, we're on your side. You know, uh, we're not the problem. It's the Israelis. Uh, it's not the Israelis that are a problem. It's the Palestinians. And the officer just like looked at him perplexed, like, how are the Palestinians the problem when you Israelis have the explosives, have the weapons, and have the means to blow up, you know, three landmarks in New York City? Could you imagine, you know, the chaos this would have caused had they not been caught? So now, the official story didn't make any sense, Max, whatsoever. I mean, did the government really expect the American to believe that a man named Osama bin Laden, who was hiding in a cave without a roll of toilet paper to wipe his behind, was responsible for bringing down the World Trade Center towers? Of course not. <laughs> right, exactly. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things that made me realize that, you know, that the truth is stranger than fiction. So, you know, th this was part one of my story. So if you guys have anything to add, you know, we can do that before I go into part two here. Uh, no, you're doing fine. Just go ahead and uh, take it away. Good, good. All right. So now uh, here in part two, it's the summer of 2002. And I wanted to take another trip to Montreal, Canada. But to my surprise, I was interrogated at the Canadian border by the U.S. Customs and the uh, Canadian Customs and told to park the car in a particular designated area and enter the Canadian Border Patrol Office, which I did. After an hour of cross-examination, I was refused entry into the Canadian uh, country. 
and given no good reason. So I returned to my car. I decided, you know what? Let me go and spend a week at a motel in Lake George. And that's what I did. I spent you know, a week there trying to detach from the Canadian border incident because it didn't make any sense. There was no rhyme or reason for this uh, turning me back at the border. In the fall of 2002, listening to the news claiming that Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were working together and that the Americans should rid the world of these two dangerous individuals, I kind of find it hard to believe when this is a rush to judgment. And I thought without significant evidence, how could the President George W. Bush declare war against Iraq and accuse Saddam Hussein of being in possession of weapons of mass destruction? What evidence did he have? You know, in my mind, the only evidence I believe he might have had was that Saddam Hussein might have had a case of Viagra, industrial strength, and, and there was a Scud missile in his, in his pants. <laughs> you know, so that was the only thing I thought. I mean, it was a stretch. I think the act of aggression against the Iraqi people was a tragic event in our nation's history. And to watch on YouTube that tribunal and assassination of the Iraqi leader you know, was despicable that people could you know, stoop to that level and buy this asinine story. You know, when the dust settled, there were no weapons of mass destruction to be found. I was appalled and ashamed by our administration's barbaric tactics and total disregard for the opinion of vice of the United Nations, George W. Bush just decided he was going to go in there like a cowboy and go in there as a gunslinger and uh, take apart a nation that had artifacts, that had culture. You know, so you don't agree with the leader. That doesn't mean you do that to a whole country. Now it looks like a, uh, a demolition country where there's nothing there that's uh, even standing. So I just thought like it's a stain in our country's history that we went and did that without probable you know, cause. You can't arrest somebody without having probable cause. And they went ahead and started a war without probable cause. And I, I think, you know, when historians look back at this, they'll realize that the truth needs to be told. And that's what I'm trying to do tonight is to connect this where people can understand, you know, if you can follow the money, you can figure out who did it. You know, all the while, we're giving false news about Al-Qaeda and watching videos of the supposed mastermind of 9-11. And it was around that time that I decided to purchase a pair of boots because I knew there was too much bullshit being sent out by the media. So I started wearing boots uh, back when they started making those reports. And, I, I, you know, this, this was too much. I thought it was like wrestling. When people watch wrestling, you know, the, uh, the scripts and, uh, you know, good guy, bad guy. And just my thoughts about the war in Iraq, you know, Osama bin Laden connection, it just all smelled very foul in there. And that's, that's part two for you. So if anybody has any questions about what I've just said, let's, we can, you know, I can answer them. No, I think you can, we'll just go right through whatever you want to talk about. Cool, cool. So here we are in part three. And this is a uh, time frame is between 2004 and 2007. I spent my time caring for my mother and brother. My, my spare time that I had, I was writing books and, and movie screenplays and trying to occupy myself. In my earlier career, I was a video sales counselor for a major electronics retailer named Circuit City, which later you'll see why I'm bringing it up. And it was there I learned about camcorders and video mo movie editing. In and around 2007, 
I created my first YouTube channel called Sandoni Productions. And now here is where the plot thickens. I started uploading movies about my experiences in Montreal, Canada. I created playlists about what I had seen and what my observations were and what I believed were the true events surrounding it. Within a matter of months, my YouTube channel had over a million views and hundreds of subscribers. I guess I was now on the radar. A lot of people were listening to uh, what I had to say very closely, and I was rewarded with, with the viewers, such as you're, you're, you're rewarded with the 378,000 people who, who listen to your show on a regular basis. So I commend you for that because you've got something to say and worthwhile, and people want to hear that. In the summer of 2007, I noticed black helicopters hovering outside of my bedroom window. My mom, who I was caring for, complained about a uh, a worker every night who, who would come into the, her, her bedroom, but she didn't know how they got into the apartment. So there was intruders, and she said to me, son, what did you do? I had no explanation. Could this have anything to do with your website and information about 9-11? So I took my mom uh, into my room. She's in a wheelchair, and I bring her in. I showed my mom, you know, like what I had put up and, and, and my uh, my information that I had. So now my mom was worried about me because she said, you know, maybe you shouldn't have spoke up. I said, look, mom, I put my pants on the same way every day. You know, my grandfather would have been proud of me, you know, and, uh, and I, I, if I had to do it over again, I'd do the same thing. You know, you have to be a stand-up guy, and that's what I was. I said, you know, the truth will set me free, and that's what I told her. Now my computer's being hacked, and I was constantly on the phone with tech support trying to fix the problem. My mother even complained about her telephone being bugged. To make matters worse, there were individuals who were following me when I took my brother to his doctor's appointments. Now, my brother, he was uh, paranoid, schizophrenic, and he was in very bad shape on medications. So my brother, he became quite paranoid after that, and he became convinced that someone was trying to kill me. One day I went out and there was cars outside that tried to run me over, came right at me, crossing the street you know, at a high rate of speed. And I was luckily to get back to the, to the, the sidewalk. I kind of did like a slide in like a baseball play would, would to back to the, to the base just so I can get back on the corner. And the car goes down the street. It had South Carolina plates and it went down a wrong way street to get away. I couldn't get a photo of it, but I realized that it was a deliberate attempt to kill me. So I went home and I kind of like told my mom and my brother about it. And like, that didn't bode well. Maybe I should have not said anything, but I was visibly upset about it. Uh, my mother, by her doctor's orders, advised her to move into a nursing home around that time where she could get better attention and having people come to the home to care for her because she wasn't able to walk. So she reluctantly agreed. And I was now in charge with caring for my younger brother, Robert, which I had no problem doing because I love my brother and I'd do anything for my brother. Uh, we were only a year apart, so we were very close and there wasn't anything, like I said, that I wouldn't do, do for him. And I, I loved him dearly and I, I, it troubled me to see him sick and on these medications. And, uh, you know, he was like a junkie on the, uh, the prescribed medication. I was doing my best to, to give him his medication. But at the same time, I wanted to detox him, but I know I couldn't. 
in the fall of 2007, after returning for a doctor's appointment, I noticed that someone had gone through my possessions. There was no sign of forced entry. I then spoke to the superintendent of the building to check the security cameras for any unusual activity, but he informed me on the following day he found nothing to suggest that anyone was seen entering my apartment on the cameras. Nevertheless, I knew that someone had been in the apartment, you know, snooping around for who knows what. And we started receiving mysterious crank phone calls throughout the day and all hours of the night. My brother was becoming more paranoid with each passing day. Robert was worried that if something would happen to me, he'd have no one to care for him and that he would be institutionalized. But I assured him, you know, that uh, not while I'm around. So my brother, he was a big smoker. He asked me to go out to get him a pack of cigarettes one day. Upon my return, my brother noticed that I was visibly shaken. Again, someone had tried to run me over as I crossed the street. And again, I was lucky to be able to slide back into first base and, and get back to the corner. So I shared this story with him. And I, that was a real big mistake because uh, now all of a sudden he was having panic attacks. And at around 3 o'clock in the morning, I heard my brother crying out for help. And it was at that time I called 911 to have an ambulance, you know, uh, pick up my brother and take him to the hospital. So this was a, a trying time for me because I'm trying to to take care of my mom and my brother. And at the same time, someone's trying to finish me off, which is uh, <laughs> a sad place to be in, but I'm stuck in this situation and, uh, you know, nothing I can do. Later in November of 2007, my mother signed herself out of a Jewish nursing home and uh, my brother, he was in the hospital. And I get a phone call from the hospital's uh, home resource department and asked if I can come up to the hospital. So I come up to the hospital and I was told that, that the doctor, by the doctor, that somebody was trying to kill me. And uh, they asked me point blank, is your life in danger? Is someone trying to kill you? I told the hospital official, my brother is a bit of a comedian. And they looked at me and said, no, he's saying someone's trying to kill you. Why in the world is he crying profusely? He hasn't slept in two days and something's got to be going on. So they decided that they were going to transfer my brother to a psychiatric ward for observation until his discharge, which would be in a couple of weeks. So here he is in a private room. All of a sudden, you know, he's uh, put in lockdown. I was able to visit him there under the limited visitor's hours because the hours now change. And I can remember leaving the hospital noticing black helicopters following me back to my mother's apartment. So here it was that uh, I was getting an escort from these black helicopters. Upon my return, in the hospital, I informed my mother about my brother Robert's current condition and predicament. My mother asked me to take him to the hospital again, and we were told that my brother had been moved, you know, again, you know, to another facility with uh, higher, you know, psychiatric uh, ward uh, containment. And we were told if we wanted to visit him, we could only come like either four, 7 p.m. at night or 4 p.m. In, in, in the afternoon. And uh, my mother suggested we go out and have dinner at a local restaurant and a block away from the hospital and we talk about it. My mother asked me about a thousand questions about my brother and what was going on and, and all of his prescribed medication because she was certain he's her baby boy. After the course of examination from my mother, I knew that my brother would tell her about the surveillance and being followed to the doctor's office and the black helicopter. It's just a matter of, you know, her course and examining him next. So at 7 p.m., my mother and I returned to Woodhall Hospital, which is in Brooklyn, 
And we went over to the desk and got two visitor passes. The elevator was, was nearby. I wheeled my mother into the elevator and I got her up to the sixth floor. And as I wheeled my mother's wheelchair up to the, uh, the sixth floor of the psychiatric area, there was a large metal door with a see-through window approximately two feet by two feet. So I rang the buzzer and waited until the hospital security guard checked in and, and checked over our visitor passes before allowing us to enter the psychiatric ward. My mother was now furious. I got to tell you, her face was beet red as a tomato. I could sense her blood was boiling. But to say she was a little pissed off would be an understatement. We were escorted to the visitor's area where there were wooden tables facing each other, almost looked like a prison-type setting. We noticed there were visitors sitting there across from the patients, bringing them food or whatever. My mother then asked to speak to the person in charge. She then told me to take out a notepad and write down all of the names of the individuals in the hospital who had been caring for my brother, and she would, on the following day, go up to the hospital and speak to the administration department. So I pulled out my notepad and uh, followed my mother's instructions. Uh, so she gre she's greeted by the hospital psychiatric doctor. And the doctor informed my mother about my brother's paranoia and his de deteriorating health. My brother was in the room there and he noticed that my brother, my mother and I were there, were there, excuse me, talking to the doctor. So he came over, my brother then yelled out at the top of his lungs, Stevie, you gotta get me out of here. The hospital food is gonna kill me. So I couldn't help but laugh because here he is. He wants to get out. And uh, I know he was, he loved his uh, his Italian food. And I go, gee, my brother's not going to do well here with hospital food. I know it. So my mother turned to me and said, write down her name. I then jotted down the psychiatrist's name, her title, and her direct contact phone number. My mother then stared at my brother's head and asked the doctor, and who cut my son's hair? Why did they give him a crew cut? You had no right to cut off his hair. I'll be reporting everyone who's responsible for abusing my son. He's not crazy. You people working here should be committed. My son's rights are being violated, and I will not allow this behavior to continue. So my mother went off on him. If my son's not transported back into the main department of the hospital, my lawyer will be in contact with you. So the administration department will see. Do you understand? So the head psychiatrist, like, she just didn't say a word when my mother went off on her because my mother was looking out for her son. I don't blame her because my brother was physically sick, you know, and uh, he wasn't mentally sick. So on the next day, we returned to the hospital and my mother spent at least an hour talking to the administration, but to no avail. And, uh, hello, are you there? Yeah, we're still here. Okay. I just heard a beep in any event. So, and so as my mother was done with the administration department, I said, let's go back. I visit with my brother, it was now visiting hours, to go see him. My brother was visibly upset. He kept repeating, I want to go home. I want to go home. Please take me home. I don't belong here. My brother then bent over and hugged my mother, and I watched as the tears rolled down each of their faces. I then quickly flipped the switch by asking my brother, what would you like to eat? He immediately answered, Italian food. So I said, your wish is my command. And I answered, I'll be back with a plate of spaghetti and meatballs in about 20 minutes. So it was, detention there was, was, was very high. And I said, you know what, I've got, to, you know, I've got to cut this tension. So I went out to get him something to eat. When I returned to the psychiatrist's ward with the food, my brother grabbed the paper bag with the Italian food and consumed everything in about a New York minute. You know, he smiled and was pleased 
you know, to see that he can get real food again. My brother was really happy. On the following day, I escorted my mother back to the hospital. After spending an hour with the home human resource department the day before, you know, my mother realized that it was futile, that my brother was not going to be, you know, uh, moved back to a, a regular room. And uh, I, I can't tell you how, how upset she was. Later that evening, I returned to the hospital with dinner for my brother because me and my mother was in a wheelchair. She couldn't go twice a day, though she wanted to. And I, I had to, you know, bring her with the wheelchair. It was a lot on me to have to do it. So I promised her that every evening I would, I would do the evening uh, visit with my brother. So after dinner, I showed my brother a video that I created for him. I figured, all right, let, let me create a video for my brother. And it was something with him and I, photos of us growing up together. Because I wanted to get his mind off being in there. And I knew he was going to be in there for a couple more weeks. And so what I did was I created a short trailer for him. And you guys can see it. It's up on my YouTube site called Stop Marconi. I changed the name from Sindoni to Marconi because I figured, you know, People are not going to believe the truth if you tell them the truth. So maybe if I write it as a comedy, I can get my point out there regarding the surveillance and what was happening to the lives of my mother, my brother, and I. And so that's what I did. Within a matter of a week, the, you know, the Stop Marconi trailer was uploaded to YouTube on my personal website. It didn't take long before my brother was telling me that in the hospital, he was a celebrity. They were calling him Mr. President because... His character in the movie he goes on to become president and goes on to put all the people in jail that was trying to hurt me. So it was kind of interesting. Like, the, you know, while he was sick like this, I did my best to make him smile. So in the hospital, he felt good that during the course of the day, he was like recognized for uh, being a celebrity. So I was kind of glad that I did that. Um, on the day before Thanksgiving, my brother was released from the hospital. And when I went up to the hospital with his change of clothes, he reminded me, make sure you bring my pack of Marlboro cigarettes with you. So as I exited the hospital with him, I held the cab. And after helping my brother into the taxi, I observed a black helicopter hovering overhead. Luckily, my brother was unaware. He was more, more concerned with his pack of cigarettes and having a, a cigarette that he hadn't had in at least a month. So I was lucky that he didn't get to see that. In the last week of November in 2007, my mother claimed that her telephone was bugged. She called the telephone company. Here's what's interesting. She asked if they could send out a technician. So they come out, and my mother is told by the technician that he didn't know how it happened, but the wires from her intercom were connected to her landline phone. Now, how was that possible? And if so, who would be wiretapping my 85-year-old my mother's telephone in her apartment. My mother grilled me over it and she says, you know anything about this? I said, why would I know anything about this? I says, I'm as perplexed as you by, you know, the, uh, the cross wiring of the telephone and the intercom. On the following morning, I entered my mother's bedroom, helping to get out of her hospital bed and into the bathroom. That's what I had to do every morning. As I helped my mother getting washed and dressed, she told me about seeing a black helicopter hovering outside her bedroom window about three o'clock in the morning. So now my mother was aware of the surveillance. She then asked me, was I on the internet during those hours? So the cat was out of the bag. We were all under surveillance. Later that day, I was listening to a comedian named Jeff Foxworthy's comedy bit, you might, make, you might Be a Redneck. So he gave me an idea for a comedy YouTube video entitled, You Might Be Under Surveillance. 
So if anybody wants to see it, you can just Google the title or YouTube search the title. And I decided enough was enough. You know, I, I'm not going to have a heart attack. I'm going to, I'm going to make a joke out of this, even though I know that this is what's really going on. So I did in December of 2007, I was looking for on the internet for a screenplay to write. And I came across a book entitled California, Mount Shasta's Mystic Mountain. It was a book written by author Emily A. Frank. And almost immediately I was drawn to a story about a mysterious old Englishman prospector who claimed to have found giant skeletons, a village with round houses under a mountain in Northern California. After spending a month researching all the clues and legend, I was able to discover that the legend was more than a legend. It was a historical fact that it was indeed true. And during the whole time I was in the library, there were people that were hacking the library's computer trying to stop me from flipping the screens to learn about you know, my research and the process of my research. I was constantly followed to the New York Public Library and my computer was hacked and I had to have uh, external hard drives up the yin-yang trying to keep everything away from uh, these people, whoever they were. I didn't know who they were, but I realized that this story was was something that somebody didn't want out there. And for more on that, you can go to my website and look for The Legend of J.C. Brown. Uh, I've been on George Norrie a couple of times, at least three times, I believe, talking about it. And that can be found on my website at uh, stevensondoni.webs.com or sindonisays.com. And you can learn more about that. So that was when I started to realize that I now needed to take my mind off what was going on and, and following up the clues that surrounded the legend was a good way to, way to do that. And that's what I did uh, in uh, April of 2008 is when I decided that I would follow all the clues. And, uh, and I did. And uh, I ended up contacting the Stockton Records Police Department to solve the missing persons report. And it was at that point that they told me that I would I should contact the Stockton Record newspaper who had put out the story in uh, 1934 and speak to a columnist there. His name was Mike Fitzgerald, who was familiar with the story. After speaking with Mike, he was kind enough to send me the original newspaper article on a PDF file via email that was published in, as I said, June of 1934. And Mike was surprised by my knowledge of the 1934 for a newspaper report without ever having all of its information. So here it is now, I'm on, I'm on this course now to solve this legend. Cause I said, you know, I gotta get away from this surveillance thing. I don't wanna write about it. I certainly don't wanna talk about it. I've got my hands full, you know, caring for my mother and my brother. And that's hard enough as it is. I mean, to be a home attendant for two people at the same time, you know, uh, there's a job for uh, a lot more than I was qualified to do, but nevertheless, you know, I was doing it. But luckily for me, my mom got well enough that I was able to uh, to step away from caring from them and start going out to the West Coast to be able to start looking, you know, for this information. But before I did that, in the late April of 2008, I started posting information to my website, and then shortly after. I was on with George Norian coast to coast and did my, my first interview with him about it. And uh, my website, which was interesting, within the first 30 minutes of me appearing, I got 10,000 hits on my website in the first 30 minutes. I was like so surprised that it, you know, it would be a cause celebrity that that many people would be interested in, in that story. So 
in May, I was contacted by a Coast to Coast listener who heard the broadcast, and uh, they told me that. And the person's name is Renee from L.A., and she sent me a set of four CDs from an earlier broadcast that was done with uh, the old host of Coast to Coast, Art Bell, with his guest Mel Waters. And she said the program might be helpful to me. So the program was broadcast in 1997. It was entitled Mel's Hole. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. If not, it's a nice show for people to watch. And it's, it's about a man who claims to have found a hole in his property that reached well over 15,000 feet with no bottom to be found. And after listening to the program, I was intrigued by the story. So much so, I made arrange, arrangements to travel to the Pacific Northwest because I wanted to see the hole. <laughs> and uh, so I went out in May of 2008, and I arrived in Olympia, Washington. And no sooner had I arrived, Renee got a call from a man named Jimmy. And he was a tribal elder from the Nisqually Reservation. And he's, I overheard Renee saying, I just put my bags down. She says, your friend Stephen here? I'll be right over if he is. I want to talk to him. There was no possible way that she, you know, that she had talked to Jimmy and he could have known that I was coming to the area. But within an hour, he was in the apartment. So we hear a knock on the door now. Jimmy is six feet tall. He's got long hair and high cheekbones. And he is a Native American, you know, through and through. And as I met him, he said, we need to talk outside. And uh, so he says to me, I was in spiritual meditation and I knew you were coming and I had to come see you. So here I am saying, okay, Jimmy, well, you got me. What is it? So we walk around the complex and as we did, he instructed me, you know, uh, that he wanted to tell me about his people's oral history. He said he wanted me to know the origin of his race, the flood story, the tall ones and Bigfoot, you know, for example. And he went on for about an hour to tell me about stories about, you know, the legends and all the things that, you know, his his nation had experienced, you know, being on the North American uh, continent. After him sharing his research with me about, after, after that, he asked me to share my research with him about the legend of J.C. Brown, about the giants living under the bowels in the Cascade Mountain Ranges. And uh, Jimmy then validated my work stating, Yes, all of the mountains in this area have ancient civilizations living deep below the earth. So that was what I needed to hear. As we circle the apartment complex, Jimmy points out two apartments where there are men and women living who were sent there to watch my every movement. He then added, Renee's apartment has been bugged. So then I realized why he didn't want to talk inside. So when we returned to Renee's apartment, there was a... Uh, a meal waiting for us, which is cool because I hadn't eaten. And after dinner, J Jimmy pulled out a ceremonial rattle and he shook it, circling my body. And uh, this was something I was like surprised at. He then pulled out some sage to clear my energy and he told me that he would make sure that the individuals who were listening and watching would be blocked from sending out electromagnetic frequency waves into the apartment because they wanted to hurt me and hurt Renee. And Renee was kind of stunned by uh, Jimmy's psychic premonitions about like, what was going on. It's like, here you are, you're in an apartment, and you have no idea that your neighbors, you know, have you under surveillance. After dinner, we all left the apartment and walked around the apartment complex. 
And Jimmy pointed out all the apartments that were conducting the surveillance. And Jimmy said goodbye to, to Renee and I before getting in his car and driving away. And so now I'm, I've got my eyes open thinking, okay, well, there's, if he's saying there's something going on, I better take this seriously. I then relayed the story to Renee, Renee about the man stopping his car. No, she then relayed the story to me about a man stopping her car the day before and showed her a soccer ball and asked her if she lost the soccer ball. Now, Renee was startled by the, the man's bizarre conversation. Renee had no way of knowing that I was a huge soccer fan. The reference to the soccer ball I knew was about me. It, it can only be me. On the following day, Renee and I were heading out of the apartment to purchase some groceries, and Renee asked if I could help her take out the trash. When we opened the gate where the dumpster was located, what do you think we find? A new soccer ball on top of the dumpster. So I picked up the ball, and I put it in the trunk of the car. I figured, well, gee, you know, now I got a soccer ball. And I, I informed her that somebody was watching us both, and they were sending us a message. So she, at that point, you know, uh, was very, very nervous, and I don't blame her. When we returned from the, the grocery shopping, we had lunch, and uh, she showed me her YouTube channel. I think it's U uh, Renee from L.A., and she's probably got 500 videos at this point up there. And I was amazed to see how many videos somebody can have on her channel. And Renee was more of a social activist. I see she had a lot of things there about speaking your truth. So I, I, I was very, I admired that because here it is, you don't find very many women, maybe you do now, but at that point that would go out there and, and, and speak truth about, you know, social conditions. And she was close to the native American community and we would go to the reservation and uh, she would get her cigarettes there. So I saw she had a, a close relationship with, with uh, the natives in the area. And, uh, she then showed me some uh, videos about the life of former President George Herbert Walker Bush. So I'm watching the video, and uh, she said she had seen this by a man. This is why it's important, because here's where I throw somebody under the bus right now, and hopefully you know, I can put in uh, a nail in the coffin as well. But there was a website by uh, someone by the name of Eric Orion called the Bush Nazi Connection. And in this interview, it talked about George Bush, allegedly being really a man named George Scherf Jr., who was the son of a legal immigrant, George Scherf, an accountant for inventor Nikola Tesla. So here it is. Father Scherf and son was sent to America to befriend the inventor and steal his inventions to help Adolf Hitler and the Nazis win World War II. I know it sounds too bizarre to be true, but nevertheless, I emailed Eric and waited for his reply. Renee's computer was now under attack. I remember her calling the internet provider to come out to check the computer, and someone had crashed her computer and sent her a virus. And I was saying, gee, interesting timing that she needed a new computer and a new internet modem. At that point, when her computer was crashed, I said, no, I'm not going to use her computer at all. Uh, so... I knew the situation was all caused by researching the allegations about former President George Herbert Walker Bush being a Nazi. So I asked her on the following day, I said, is there a public computer that I can use nearby? Is there a library or somewhere where I can go in a cafe? Fortunately, she told me there was uh, a college nearby, the Evergreen College campus, which was a walking distance from the apartment. So she dropped me off at the college before going to work that day. And I decided I was going to spend a couple hours on the Evergreen College's computer and 
open up the internet browser to check my email, and there in my inbox was a reply from Erica Ryan. He assured me that the allegations surrounding former President George Herbert Walker Bush was true, that he is not the son of Prescott Bush. After reading Eric's email, I told him I would spend the next several hours investigating the life of our former president. Within a couple of hours of fact-checking, I could find no record for the birth of George Herbert Walker Bush. And, you know, given that, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, you know, somewhere I didn't check. So then I went and checked the U.S. Census records, and I could find no information that supported the fact that he was indeed the son of Prescott Bush. I was able to find the other children born to Prescott Bush, but not our former president on the 1930 census. I believe that was what it was. I even looked at the 1920 census, figured, well, he was, he was born in 25. I know I won't find him on that one, but let me just give the former president, you know, uh, the benefit of the doubt. And at that point, I realized that if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So then I emailed Erica Ryan with my discovery, and then he asked if I could put his radio interview up on my YouTube channel and personal website. So I did that from the library's computer. Not long after I did that to my websites, I'm being followed by black helicopters there in uh, Olympia, Washington, and I was threatened on the streets of Olympia by these three guys telling me that it wouldn't be safe for me to stay in that town. Then we're driving on uh, I-5 right near uh, the, uh, the the military base there in uh, Fort Lewis, and a car, a black, a, a black tinted window car pulls up alongside and catches up to us. And I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and all of a sudden, it rolls down the window a little bit to, uh, next to me, and I get hit in the head with an electromagnetic frequency beam, and almost pull my head back like the Kennedy assassination. So. My head sprang back, and Renee said, you all right? I said, you know, stop the car, pull it over. So she ends up going on the shoulder of the road, and I explained to her, you know, that I had just been hit, you know, uh, by this uh, this vehicle there uh, with black-tinted windows. So now we really realize that, you know, uh, I was now a target. And when she wow, Stephen. Before, I'm yeah. going to stop you right there just for a second. Uh, we're going to go to a break. Um, we're at the top of the hour. And I just wanted to quickly ask you, um, does the book Below the Radar describe all of those experiences that you're talking about today? No, Below the Radar, what that talks about is all the things that Edward Snowden didn't tell you about Internet security, things that you okay. can keep yourself safe. Okay, so it's it's about some other things, not necessarily what we're talking about today. All right, well, what we're going to do is we're going to go to a break. It'll be uh, three to five minutes. So if everyone wants to just hang in there, and uh, we'll be right back with the Max Steele Show. My God, Nicole. <laughs> awesome. Hold on a second. I got to do something. Welcome to the Captain Max Steele Show. Radio. Uh, thank you for coming back uh, to the Max Steele Show. Uh, I, uh, when you finish this uh, segment, uh, uh, what you're talking about, um, 
uh, Stefan, I, I would like to go into the the uh, hollow earth a little, uh, and we can talk about that and go really deep in it. Uh, I, I recommend that uh, uh, you get a, a, a BPN where it goes to different countries. That will protect you from get, from them attacking you or getting inside your computer. Uh, they are, there is a, a new wireless router that's made by Norton. Okay, you can get it, I think, eBay or, or Amazon. It costs about almost $300, but it's got about, it's got about five, or, uh, five firewalls. And I have, I have that here, okay? And uh, it, it'd be a good idea if you could do that. It will help you a lot. I do want to talk something to you in private, not on the air. Uh, as soon as the show's over, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask Russ to uh, uh, keep us here so we can talk a little bit in private. I need to tell you something I want to help you with. And uh, I'm going to get you some protection. But we have to talk that in private, okay? Did you hear? Did you did he hear what I said, Russ? We lost him. Damn it! I said all that for nothing. Uh, no, I think. Uh, 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 are you on there, Stefan? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Did you hear what I said? You you talked about a wireless router. Yeah, that I heard. Okay. Uh, uh, I'll t I'll talk to you about something private. But what I want you to do is to finish what you were talking at, at the end of the first hour, just for a little bit, and I want you to go into the hollow earth, because a lot of people yeah. like to hear about that. So yeah, I'm talk about that right now. Yeah. Okay, okay. okay. Let, let's do that. Let's start up, talk about the hollow earth, what's going on, uh, if it's for real, because some people are, are skeptical. I want you to talk if it's for real, what's going down there, who's who's controlling it, or, and, and whatever you know about it. Go ahead. you all that right now. So, Go ahead. Do it. So Renee and I, we're, we're going to uh, to go to James Gillen's ranch. And as we're going, she realizes problems with the brakes in her car. So we got to go get the brakes fixed before we go down there. Someone had uh, tampered with her master, master cylinder. So somebody wanted to get rid of us real quick. So... We ended up getting the car inspected again and, and fixed, and we were able to go down to the ranch. When we were on the ranch, I met Gillen there and some other people there, but the first night we were there, uh, on his ranch, you can look up, and it looked like a UFO highway with unidentified flying craft above his, his ranch, and he would have like uh, a uh, one of those uh, red infrared lights, and he'd beam it up at the craft, and the craft would beam back down, something that hit the ground to show all of us there who were watching there in the field that he was in communication with the craft. That night, it started raining early, and when you get now to the giants and the hollow earth stuff right now, uh, we went back to our tent, Renee and I, she had her tent and I had mine. And all of a sudden, I look and I see an ominous figure above my tent. It must have been eight to nine feet tall. I thought it was a bear. So now I grab my boots, put my boots on, probably the same boots I had from uh, the 9-11 nonsense, and put them on and look, grab to get my flashlight. And as I did that, I opened up the zipper of the tent, and I didn't see anything out there. So I went out into the field and walked ahead of me, 
And the field is right in front of Mount Adams, which is another uh, mountain range there in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm out looking to find this creature. As I walked around, you could hear the dogs barking and uh, there was a big excitement on the ranch. So Renee was in her tent and she froze because she's looking out in the field and she could see one of the tall ones there looking at her. And I don't know, uh, she said she, uh, she just, she said, please God, don't kill me. So while this was going on, it was like uh, Abbott and Costello when uh, Costello goes, hey, Chuck. And he's like, he's so scared that he can't even yell out and get his partners, uh, you know, to recognize that you know, he's afraid for his life. So she's in there and she said she was like speechless. So I'm out looking around with some other people, come to find out that they also had seen, you know, this creature or this large ominous figure. So in the morning, I talked to James Gilliland, who owned the ranch, and I told him what, what had happened. He said, yeah, these tall ones are on the ranch on a regular basis, and they live under the bowels of Mount Adams. And, uh, yes, you did see uh, people that living, you know, an underground civilization under that mountain. I can add here to tell you, Mount Shasta used to have a civilization of Telosians that were there, Diane Robbins, who uh, does books about that. I've done some narrations with her and uh, she's a good friend of mine. And uh, she was in contact with uh, the high priest of Telos, Adama, who lives underneath that mountain. And there's over a million and a half people that were living there underneath the mountain. But what happened was the military now has two bases there on Mount Shasta. And the Telosians just recently moved completely from, from Mount Shasta now to Mount Adams. So that is now where the alien presence resides underneath Mount Adams there in that area. So I figured I'd share that with you on there. So the military now in town of Mount Shasta, what they've done, and here's the reason why I decided to do this interview. I was out in Shasta, I just returned two months ago, and I was filming a movie, and a couple of years back I was gonna to get to this, when I was out there, uh, Someone dug a hole on the mountain, and the, the, the hole was 50 feet deep and about 20 feet wide. Uh, and the U.S. Forest Service and the FBI uh, wanted to pin it on me. Now, I was out of town at the time. I got a phone call from a friend who was producing uh, my TV show at the college. I was doing a show called Legend, Mysteries, and More. And the reason I, I took on that show is because people were threatening to hurt me. I said, you know what? I'm going to go public. I'm going to do a, a TV show about legends and mysteries. Nothing about the surveillance or me being threatened, but just to, you know, just to put myself out there. So that way, you know, the best uh, defense is offense, and I figured I'd go public. But while I was out there, uh, the hole there was something that the uh, the government uh, didn't want people to, to know about because just recently, two guys got lost uh, on the back end of the mountain, and one of the guys found his way to a military base. So when he found the base, there was a sentry guard at the gate there with a rifle, and he told him, he said, please help me, I'm lost. And the guard turned around and said, get the F out of here. So when he came back to town, he told everybody in town that he found you know, the secret base that was there. Initially, there was one, but now there's two there. And what they've done is, uh, and this is why I'm going public with you, I'll cut to the chase here, is that while I was out there, we were filming the movie, uh, uh, Stephen's Hole, and uh, Elijah Sullivan is uh, directing this movie that I'm in. And initially, he was looking you know, to, to film a movie about who dug this hole. And then he was approached by the St. Germain Foundation, 
which had nothing to do with the hole on the mountain. Their, their property was in Dunsmere. And they told him that if he goes and makes this movie, you know, bad things will happen to him. Similar to what I was told when I was invited onto the St. Germain uh, property to see this unusual uh, rock basalt foundation that I believe was uh, the rock that J.C. Brown and Lord Cowdery went through to go underneath the bowels of Mount Shasta when they found uh, 27 skeletons, roundhouses, and hieroglyphics and, and uh, weapons that they believe were Lemurian. So there was a presence there, but in town there, just the day before when I was leaving, some guy sitting next to me and says to me, he said, uh, a girl's looking for you. I said, oh, yeah, we were supposed to go to dinner. And I didn't know how he, he knew because I didn't know him at all. But as luck would have it, the day before, I was, I was playing chess with this Native American guy. And uh, I saw him just before this guy had happened at my table. And when they were playing chess, somebody uh, was interfering with giving one guy direction over what move to make. So the Native American Jimmy goes into his backpack and said to the fellow, come here. I goes over to the next table. He pulls out a taser, turns it on, and he zaps it and says, the next time you open your mouth, he goes, you're going to get this. So I was like shocked. I started laughing. I said, I can't believe this. You know, I almost saw, you know, like <laughs> somebody get tased here. So right after that, I said to Jimmy, I said, Jimmy, I said, do you want the, the new 2019 model taser? He goes, how am I going to get that? I said, because I'm buying the one in your hand. He goes, really? I said, yeah, name your price. I, I want it. So I said, I'm going back to New York. I can't get one in New York. And I didn't tell him about what was happening to me. I said, can I, can I buy it from you? So I do. And we walk outside. I said, just quickly show me how to use it. So I had a bag with me. It was uh, with a granola bars in it, a paper bag. And I took the taser, put the safety lock on it, put it back in the bag. So I go back into Berryville, the little uh, convenience store there. And there's a man sitting there now telling me that uh, someone was looking for me. And then he says to me, they said, there's some towers in Mount Shasta, and what they are is EMF towers, and what they're done, they're put there to dumb people down because they don't want people coming to town anymore to start going up on the mountain. So I guess these, these EMF rays were to make people feel like nauseous or just get headaches or queasy or whatever, and they, they wouldn't stay in town long. He said, do you want to see these towers? I said, I know where they are, and I, I don't want to see them. He says, well, I tell you what, I'm a shaman. I'd like to take you up on the mountain, and if you've got any last wishes or any last rites that you want to say, I can make it right with you and the maker. I've got a 45 in my pocket. So I looked at him. I realized, that, you know, he's threatening me now. So these guys are still playing chess. So here I am, cool hand Luke. I open up the bag with the granolas where I have the taser. I calmly open it up, take the safety off, and I put it back in his face. I said, you see this? This is a taser. Let's go on the mountain. Your ass is going to meet the maker first. And by the way, he just told me that the Israeli Mossad have been following me here in California and that when I get back to New York, that they're going to take me out. I said, well, before they do, I'm taking you out tonight. Let's go. All of a sudden, he ran out of the restaurant like as if he had diarrhea. So the two guys playing uh, chess turned around to me and said, what happened to him? I said, I don't know. Maybe bad tacos or something. He left. Yeah. But I didn't want to tell them. So I came back to New York and I've got this taser there just waiting for the next person who wants to test my uh, my patience. But that was the reason I had told uh, uh, Jen about this, about what happened, because I was supposed to meet Jen because uh, I'm writing another book as per Jen, Jen's idea that I should I should write something, you know, start writing again. 
And she would be so kind as to help me again edit my my next book. So that's the thing I was about it. Stephen, can you tell them about when we were making that movie um, the right. first time I met you? And yeah, um, yeah I'll, I'll tell that, and then you can jump in. So what happened okay. was uh, I go back to uh, to the East Coast, and uh, I'm now in Michigan. I traveled around a lot because everywhere I went, you know, uh, I had surveillance. I'm in Michigan. And a friend and I get a, a request from someone who wants to do the movie, The Legend of J.C. Brown. They saw you know, me and uh, George Norrie and other places. And uh, so we contracted to get a, a film crew together to, uh, to film the movie about you know, my story. So uh, while we're out there, we're, uh, we just got to the property of the Cave Springs Resort. And uh, I hadn't met the film crew yet. We had, I got picked up in Sacramento and uh, driven directly to Dunsmere overnight. So I'm sitting by the pool and at 12, 12 noon, my film crew was supposed to meet me at a picnic table. So I could see the film crew waiting to meet me. Now they hadn't met me yet. And all of a sudden, uh, I've got the sheriff of, of Dunsmere and his assistant coming over by the pool where I'm sitting and asking me, am I Steven Sindeli? I says, could be, might be, what do you want him for? Well, are you him or not? I says, well, I might be, it depends. I, Right now, I'm his authorized representative. Tell me what you want with him. They said, well, we heard him on coast to coast saying he was going to go on private property or whatever. And uh, well, if he does go on, or you go on the property, we're going to arrest you. So the other officer says to me, can I see your ID? I said, well, my ID's back in my, uh, my cabin. He goes, can you go get it? I said, no, I, you don't have a probable cause enough to get it. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm on private property, number one. I'm paying a bill for 10 people here to stay here with my film crew. I said, you have no right to do this. Now, when I stop off this, step off this property where I'm in the city of Dunsmere, you have every right to, to talk to me with probable cause. I says, I will tell Louis Dewey, who owns this uh, K-Springs Motel, that if I'm taking off this facility, I'm taking the 10 people off you know, his property, and he'll have no revenue because of you. So he turned around and he says, well, we just want you to let you know the St. Germain Foundation is uh, going to be locking you up, arresting you for going on the property. I said, well, did you not hear that I had permission to go on there the first time? I said, you must have missed that part of the interview. I said, are we done? So he walked away. Now, while this was all going on, Jen, my, my film guy who hadn't met me yet just took out the camera. He starts rolling. He filmed the whole thing. So now I walk over to the bench and meet my film crew. That's how I met them. But on the following day, we were filming there in Hedge Creek Falls, and while we're filming there is where I had the pleasure of meeting you and uh, becoming friends with you at that point. And when I did, there on that uh, Hedge Creek Falls uh, area there, I had uh, uh, U.S. Forest Service and probably FBI agents looking to arrest me on that day. So it was kind of interesting that, was that day as well. Yeah, I saw the uh, FBI agents coming down the steps um, toward the waterfall, because um, I'll never forget that day. I'm walking down the steps, and you turn to me and say, what are you doing here? Oh, let me see. You're the Lemurian. And I went, yeah, because I had told Stephen I, I, I was a Lemurian of origin, and he said, yeah. And he, he was pointing out Lemurian symbols on the cave out there, and um, then we knew he was in kind of a tr trouble so we left and as, as we were going up the stairs fbi agents were coming down so i i didn't stick around to see, see what was going on but i could tell you he was he definitely followed that whole weekend 
uh, I want to say something. Uh, Stephen, 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 hold on a second. Hold on a second. Uh, since you've been talking, I have picked up something um, about you and and, and uh, Mr. Brown. Um, okay. Uh, I'm picking up uh, like a, an energy field that's uh, coming off him and connected to you, okay? Can I tell you uh, why? Would you like yeah. to know why? Yeah, but don't talk. I, I want you to go into hollow earth because it's important. I know you're talking about, but I need for you to go into hollow earth because a lot of, a lot of people asked me before you came on the show, tell him to talk about hollow earth. So we need to talk about, but answer that, that what I just picked up. There's more I need to tell you. The reason why you're, you're picking that up, because I was a John Benjamin Body, alias J.C. Brown, in my last lifetime, and I'm retracing my steps from Mount Shasta regarding this uh, giant hollow earth experience. Now, in regards to uh, the hollow earth and what they're asking, I have a site called hollowearth.webs.com where I discuss many things that people want to know about the hollow earth, so if they want to know about it. But here's what I'll tell you. There's uh, a story that I did uh, with Admiral Byrd that people can see that speaks to his experiences. There's another experience about the smoky God where a father and son uh, go into the hollow earth and spend two years there. With that story, I, I did the research on that, and people can find that on my YouTube site where I was able to find the men, find them on the U.S. Census, find them living in L.A. at the time. And I found a ship's captain, Scottish ship captain, who picked them up near Antarctica to prove that this story actually did happen. And there is a civilization there that's been living there thousands of years. It's uh, based uh, uh, Lyrian and then uh, Lemurian next, and the Elanians went in thereafter. And then a lot of other races are in there, but there's probably... 47 different type of uh, aliens, we'll say, that live in the bowels of uh, the earth. Yeah. I want to tell you something that while you're talking, I'm picking up things. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a remote viewer and uh, a medium, uh, clairvoyant. I'm all that put together. But I am seeing that uh, those people that went into uh, the cave and going to hollow earth, uh, they were guided there. There are two places and the wall, the mountain in the back that has uh, a big cavern when you go there. There's actually two directions. The one to get down to uh, uh, hollow earth, it, it, there's a, a difference in the wall. You got to be able to figure it out. The only way to do that is by moving your face to left, to right, just a little bit at a time, and you'll see which which pathway you need to go. I already seen the pathway. It's to the left. The pathway to the left is the one that takes you all the way to a hollow earth. But this is what how how it works. When you walk in, when wait a minute, when you walk in that little, once you walk in the in the pathway, uh, you actually are walking just little steps, not full steps. You can't walk with normal steps as you walk. When you walk in that in that uh, that cave, that pathway, 
you walk half of the steps you normally do. All you have to do is take three steps normally with your right, left, and right. And as you're going forward, you go through a portal and it'll take you straight down to hollow earth like if you were going in an elevator going very fast. And it only takes about three seconds to get to hollow earth because it's very deep in the undergrounds. Uh, the the law it's it's got to be done that way because there's a lot of lava channels through all the earth, and uh, it's got to go at, at more faster than light speed because you're going to have to go that that when you're traveling in that uh, in that pathway, um, it's like a vortex. But you got to go. It's got to go real fast because if you if it goes slow. You'll go through the lava and it will hurt you, but it's got to go real fast. So uh, yeah, I can, yeah, I can tell you that in, in Dunsmuir, California, there are uh, there are other holographic entrances that looks like an Indiana Jones type movie, uh, rock basalt foundations that can only be accessed through harmonics, or different vibrations, different keys, and if you hit the same the right keys or right notes, so to speak, then uh, a pivotal-based door will open up and allow you in. There's a man by the name of Brad Sage who uh, who I met while I was out there filming when, Jen, you were out there, who uh, came from San Francisco to talk to me about being on the old uh, Mount Shasta Resort property, which was then now owned by uh, the St. Germain Foundation, where he and his daughter were hiking uh, on uh, their property during the, uh, Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving dinner, and they met a man in a white robe, seven foot tall with a British accent, had told them, you had just found the back door to Telos, would you like to come in? So, you know, uh, they, they declined, but he came up to tell me the story, and I had seen that rock basalt foundation, so there are entrances through there, but uh, unless you've got the right frequencies or you you enter it the right way, as you're mentioning, you won't enter. So it depends on the person's vibration because a lot of it is uh, fifth dimension and not third dimension. And and these individuals that we're speaking about vibrate to a higher level. They can't stay very long out on the outside with us because of the density at the level that we're on. So, and only light light beings are able to... uh, be like-minded, may be able to see them where other people could be standing right there and they won't see them. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, The other thing is that um, you're right. It has to be the right vibration of your body. Uh, There is another way you can go in there. You don't have to go in that way. Uh, You know, like everything, like computers, software have a back door. All the all these vortexes got back doors. Here's how it is: you can actually uh, open that door, not there at uh, Mount Chasa. You can actually open it wherever you are at. You you got to prepare yourself very highly. Protect yourself. You got to be able not to uh, let fear hit you because it, once you open the portal where you're at, like your home or in your backyard or whatever, you can open it up. You can also open it up inside the house. I don't recommend you do it inside the house. I would recommend you do it outside. Uh, once you once you uh, bring in the portal to open it up, you're gonna have to be a, a, a very high vibration 
like you said, the frequency has to be changed. It has to be different. You got to know how to protect yourself before you go in. I'm going to tell you why. What, what, wait a minute. Once you go into the vortex, okay, uh, there's going to be good things and bad things in there. Because once you enter it, the bad thing will show up and will try to uh, change your mind not to go in there. Because uh, the negative wants to keep controlling us on the outside of this vortex on this side. Once you go in and you ignore what you see because they're going to try to scare you, you're going to try to commit fear in you, you got to be very strong and not accept that. And you have to think about how strong you are and you work for the light. Once you well, that's exactly right. Yeah, I uh, I've encountered many things that people try to you know try to affect me, put fear, put the bug in my ear. But I I use a lot of uh, <clears throat> meditations. I use rainbow therapy. I, I surround myself with a rainbow light. I use the Ho'oponopono prayer. I, I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And uh, I've been known to almost bring down helicopters with with uh, rainbows of light. They, as soon as they see me do, they put my hand up and my hand over my heart. They're gone in the New York minute. So I've learned how to uh, to protect myself in, in, in a way where uh, I've been a shaman in other lifetimes, not only uh, having a lifetime as J.C. Uh, Brown. I've been a number of people that I recall. And I think the fact that I remember or I can go to places or pick up things such as yourself uh, is what is scaring the bejesus out of people to use a biblical reference here because they don't want people to know that uh, – there is more on uh, the etheric level than there meets the eye. A lot of people are caught in the 3D in, in, in the reality on prison planet. And once you start to step outside of the box, you'll find out, hey, I might have been here before. You know, did you ever have a deja vu moment? Have you ever felt you knew someone without ever you know, uh, meeting them before? Well, there's a lot of things that the, the universe has a, has a sense of humor and shares with us, but if we're not listening to the guidance, we don't really believe, hey, you know, say, well, could I be, you know, like a little off thinking this? Well, no, they're putting it in your head for reasons all over the world to go look at things and to see things. And then I get, I get information given to me. I mean, I did over a thousand YouTube movies and probably half of them was divinely orchestrated. And uh, I trust what I get. Uh, I, uh, I am auditory where I hear things and also I, I see it in pictures in my head and I can go to sleep and I'll just put up the thought I need this information and that and all of a sudden next morning I get up and by the time I get done having my cup of tea all of a sudden I start writing and there it is uh, whatever it is I want but you're right I mean people have to trust that you know they are co-creators with source and this is the problem one of the things that uh, I can talk about it. You talk about the hollow earth. Well, if you want to know the, the beginning of it, you know, I said the Lyrians, but you've got the Anunnaki. And uh, they are very big in that. And you've got stories I did about Edidorfa that people can find on YouTube that I've done about an underground civilization there. And there is sprinkles and hints about the Anunnaki, but not enough information. People don't realize where to get it. And once you realize who created this planet, what their intentions were, why they made a prison planet. If you try to follow the Sumerians, you'll, you'll understand that we're told very little about them, but they were the first civilized, civilized civilization on this planet. Maybe one day I'll come on the show and I'll actually share with people the origin of man and how we got here and, and the whole 
the whole skinny on that and as to why I could say I am the son of Marduk and I am a co-creator with the source because I'm, I am godlike and who I am. And, and this is what people have a problem with who are trying to hurt me because they know I know who I was, I know who I am, and I know what my purpose here now is to do. And we need to all live in the heart, be heart smart, and realize we're all connected, just as all your viewers that are listening to my voice tonight. There's no, this is no coincidence that we're all here together tonight. But together, we can change things. You had a man like John Lennon who said, give peace a chance. You know, all we need is love. This is what it's about. And when you get out of fear, as you're mentioning, and you go into your heart and you go into your love vibration, you realize that everything is possible and miracles can and do come true. Okay, I want to ask you something. I've been doing something here for you since you, you started talking the last. Do you feel anything around you right now? Yeah. I'm sending some... As far as negative or positive? No, I don't work with negative. I'm talking about positive energy. Do you feel anything around your body right now? Yes, I do. I feel an energy field around me right now. I can see like a, a yellow. Uh, Go ahead. Keep talking. A yellow aura around me right now. And uh, uh, I'm a little, a little bit right now. And I'm seeing it where it's, uh, it's almost changing to like a blue. I guess it's, it's for my communicator. Right now I'm looking at my, I'm, I'm told to look at my lapis lazuli uh, bracelet here. <laughs> speak my truth. And I'm seeing that. I'm getting um, Archangel Gabriel now coming in and telling me, just let it roll. Just speak your truth. So I'm getting angelic presence right now as we speak. Uh, okay. I I'm sending that to you. That's why I've been doing for the last uh, probably about five minutes. I still got my hands up. I was told by our Archangel Gabriel to uh, put this energy around you. Okay. So I'm, I'm doing that for Coincidence, I would mention Gabriel's name then. Well, no, because he's he's the one that put all he's he set all this up. He wants you to be protected, and not only that, uh, I'm sending the big the big boys in in uh, the archangels. Uh, I have Archangel Michael that's going to be protecting you for for the longest time that you need. He told me to tell you that you're going to be protected by Archangel Gabriel, Archangel Michael. Uh, and uh, Ariel, you don't have to worry about anything. Everything be fine. But I need to talk to you in private because I have to tell you something very important that's going to make your life so easy and you're not going to be bothered anymore. Well, I appreciate that. You know, it's interesting. On my computer, I've got Archangel Michael's picture, Gabriel, uh, Ariel, and I, on my arm, I've got tattoo <laughs> Michael on my arm, and he's, he's with me every day. So it's kind of interesting that... Uh, you say that there's a statue, uh, right? I went to go visit the other day near the San Gennaro Feast uh, in a church there in, there in Manhattan. And I time to time go and I spend a little time with Archangel Michael there and just uh, converse with him. And, nice. Uh, while, we're, while we're on this topic, we just had a question come in that's uh, related to that. Um, Stefan, I heard an interview last month here on Wall Street Radio, someone suggesting that Mount Shasta was some kind of anchor for Archangel Energy, specifically Michael, acting as some kind of relay or communicator with the galaxy at large or with Galactic Center. Do you think Mount Shasta 
is such an anchor communicator? And if so, do you think Shasta has lost its role due to tampering? Well, here's what's happening now. Uh, our, uh, Mount Shasta is the home of Archangel Gabriel. That is his home. Um, um, the home of Archangel Michael is Lake Louise in Canada. That's where he, he resides. But specifically right. in Mount Shasta, where Gabriel is, what has affected the, the angelic presence there is that they are doing testing there on humans there. And a lot of this testing has made the people who were in the mountain there decide that they didn't want to live there anymore. So with, with the frequency changes, with the fires in the area that I've seen, with the, the electromagnetic frequency towers, with the, the government agents coming in and threatening people like myself and other people who I work with professionally, I realized that it's not a good place to go to at this moment because Unless you are doing your work and you are on a higher vibration, these people are going to do their best, you know, to, to knock you off your game. So I would tell anybody going up there to go up there and, uh, you know, uh, pray a lot, you know, uh, be, be in your heart and realize that these people have no power unless you give it to them. But, yeah, there, there is a change there happening in Mount Shasta. And the other day uh, there was uh, a lot of ships seen going into the mountain and near the eddies there and uh, – I was told that these ships are not for our highest good. So there's an interesting change that's happening in that mountain. I think right now that the government doesn't want uh, this to uh, get any further out of control because they want to be able to do their secretive work there underneath uh, that mountain. If that makes any sense right now to you. Uh, yes. I, I need, I, wait a minute. Uh, I need to say something. Um, I have to, I have to tell you this, um, the Lemurians, um, have, have, a, they have a second location. Okay. They've had a second location for three years now. Uh, I can't tell you, I can't say it on the air where they're at yet until I get permission to say it. The only thing I can tell you, they, they have moved to the mountains of Tennessee there's a very large mountain. It's very sacred. And the first Lemurian king that was in Lemuria when all this happened, uh, he happened to uh, reincarnate again. And he, he lives very close to that mountain. And I know him personally. And, uh, and Nicole, well, my wife knows about it. We, I took her there. She met him. It's a very special phase and sacred, the Lemurians have changed location. Uh, there is something that's going on in, in, in uh, Mount Chassa. Um, I need to tell you this, that uh, our, what was Amada, Amarda, uh, the, the Lemurian that's in charge now? Uh, Adama. Adama, okay. Adama is no longer there. He has gone to the new location. There are things going on in Mount Shasta that's not good, like you said. Uh, they have moved uh, about 90% of the Lemurians uh, have moved to Tennessee. It's a very sacred mountain. Um, I know where it is. Uh, and they're not, it's, it's, gonna, it's the new Mount Shasta where they, they've gone. 90% have gone. A lot, there's a lot of races in there. 
They're very positive, and uh, they have all moved there, okay? Uh, they do, uh, when I go to the Lemurian King, I'm not going to say his name, okay, uh, to, for his protection. Uh, uh, the king uh, trusts me very, very highly, and I don't take anybody up there. I have to feel the energy, and then when I feel like it's the right time for that person to go up there, uh, I contact him. He says, can I bring this person? He'll tune into it. And, uh, and I'll tune, uh, tune in together at the same time on the telephone. And he says, go ahead and bring them. All right. There, there is a very special chair, a chair where you sit down. Uh, that chair is for the princess. There is a princess sitting there in that chair. But you can't sit when you want to. You got to ask permission. You'll feel the presence of, the, of that princess when, it's in front, when you're getting ready to sit on the chair. It'll tell you, yes, you have permission to sit on. If you sit down because you want to, I'm going to guarantee you that uh, something will fall on your rear end nice and hot, and you can't sit down. It'll, it'll push you out of that chair, okay? It's in this house. That chair is uh, it, very old, very old, okay? Uh, and... Uh, I've said on one time, I asked permission, and said, of course, Isaiah goes, that my real name is, it's not Max Steele. My real name is Isaiah, A-Z-A-Y-A. That's my real name, okay? So um, I got to tell you another thing, too. Um, all right, hold on a second. Something's coming in. Okay, hold on a second. Okay. You're going to be contacted and you're going to be told and you're going to be, you're going to be sent to uh, hollow earth. You're going to go there and body complete body. I don't know when, but, uh, there are some frequencies and, and, uh, timelines that are changing in you right now. Uh, this thing about, uh, being attacked and, almost killed. I have gone through the same thing too. Uh, I've been, uh, I've had like four life attempts on my life. And because uh, my training in, in the military, uh, what, that's what saved me, uh, the quick reaction. Um, I'm going to tell you that uh, if you give me permission right now, um, I'm going to put something around you. Uh, in fact, we'll do it in play. Okay. Uh, here's what I want you to do. Everybody who's listening to me right now, please do it with me at the same time that I'm doing with Stefan. Okay. Uh, here's what you do. Um, I'm going to give you a perfect number. I'm going to give you the number eight, all of you that's listening to my voice. I'm giving you the number eight. The number eight is the diameter of the biosphere bubble that you're going to be inside. Project yourself inside that bubble. And uh, I don't want you to say, I don't want you to tell me what color. You're going to create and manifest that you're inside a biosphere right now. And you're inside in the center. I want you to create inside 
360 all the way around, a color of your choice. Don't say it out loud. Don't tell anybody about it. And here, and you just keep it to yourself and create and manifest a color of your choice inside the biosphere. In the inside only. Project the color that you want. I'm going to give you three seconds to do it. Okay. We have created a color on the inside where you're sitting in. That color will protect you on the inside. We are going to create and manifest on the outside of your body only the exterior. Only, I just want you to understand it has to be the exterior, the outside of the bubble. Okay? I want you to create and manifest a mirror. M-I-R-R-O-W. Create a mirror all the way around the exterior only. That's all I want you to think now. Exterior only, create and manifest a mirror. Do it now. Okay. We have created the mirror all the way up. Now I want you to say... I activate my biosphere for protection. I activate my biosphere for protection. Okay. I activate it. Say it. I activate it. I activate it. So be it. So be it. Okay. Now, I'm going to explain. The mirror, the mirror is, that's all around you, any type of negative energy or any dark forces. Uh, let's say you're, you're standing in the hallway of your house and they come through and they hit you. The first thing you're going to run into the mirror. And what, what is going to happen once they enter, once they enter, they'll disappear in a multi-dimension of mirrors. And it'll go on forever until that, that entity is destroyed by his own self. It'll be destroyed in just minutes. So when everybody got this type of protection, uh, what it means is that any you won't be at anything that attacks you, uh, Stefan, it's going to go into the mirror and disappear. You'll be highly protected. And all the people that have listened to me, that's the way it's going to happen. Now, this protection of, of the biosphere, I have created that. I am the one that created that. To, for your protection. Um, well, I thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, what I want to say to the, the people that are listening, it's very important that you do that. Very important. You won't be attacked anymore. Any attack will go into mirror and disappear. It's you know, interesting, yeah, that you mentioned that, yeah. It's well known that the dark forces and the dark energy, they live, they live in a parallel world to this earth, okay? It's what people think. I'm just gonna tell you, hell, everybody that says in the Bible, hell does not exist. What you go in is they pull you in into that world of darkness. So if, if you wanna say it's hell, well, you, it, it is hell. But it's really not. 
a hell is just uh, information that's been put in the Bible to uh, hope make the Christians uh, into fear. Okay, we got 10 minutes left on the show. Uh, I want to tell you, every folks, that if you fall into fear, you'll be pulled in there. Once, once they pull you, if you, this protection that I gave you will not let you go in there. They can't, they can't touch you anymore like the song. You can't touch me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if, uh, if you get an energy that's, uh, that's pulling, that's trying to pull, they can't pull you in there. They can't. Now, the other thing I want to say, I've said it many times, and I'm going to say it one more time. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe more times. If you're, uh, where you're going to go, like, for example, if you die on earth, do not go to the light, do not go to the tunnel. If you go there, well, a lot of people say that's good. No, it's not good. If you go that way, you'll be recycled and you come back here to earth. When you do that, when, they, uh, when, you're, when you're in that space that you're taking off, because you will recognize when you're going in, that, in, a, in a similar direction. So when you go in that direction, um, it, it's not, wait a minute, something's coming in. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. Hold on a second. I'm getting information from Saint Germain. It won't he's saying that is not is not very we're not very wait a minute. Uh they're trying to get in, but they're not gonna get in. Because they know I'm talking about them. Saint Germain says we're not too far from deactivation. Be patient. Do not listen to the gurus. They're completely wrong. They don't know what's happening. Okay? There's only three people on this planet that Saint Germain talks to, and I'm one of them. There's two others. Okay? Um, wait a minute. I'm getting a message. Okay, um, Stefan, you're going to have protection from my people. Um, I'm not from this planet. I'm a walk-in. That's why I said my name is Zay. I'm the leader of my people. Um, Senior man says he's going to protect you in many ways. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I first went up to the specific Northwest, Native Americans told me that St. Germain was standing behind me. When I went to California, <clears throat> one of my Lemurian brothers told me he was following me there. He was with me at all times. So St. Germain has been, been with me many, many times in the last seven years. So I am a firm believer that uh, he walks with me. Okay, there, there is a, there is another one that uh, St. Germain comes from my uh, my star system. He is a, he lives in one of the planets next to me. He is one of my people. I am the I am the leader. I am their king. Now the other one that's going to follow you, uh, you probably uh, his name is uh, El Moria. El Moria is going to protect you. I've done stories about El Moria. I've got prayers uh, from uh, 
from books uh, with affirmations from El Moria. So I'm very familiar with, I've been, you know, praying to him, oh, back seven years already. So I'm very familiar with El Moria. Okay, I, I got one more that's going to protect you too. Uh, his name is Katumi. I've got him too, yeah. You do, huh? Yeah. How would I know that? It's interesting because a lot of the work I've done, <clears throat> these people <clears throat> have come to me at certain times and given me little uh, bits of information about the inner earth or, or being protected. So uh, you're on the right wavelength, and uh, you have, you've got a lot of credibility with me. That's, there's no doubt about that. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest here and be truthful with you. Uh, I didn't have time to look a lot of stuff on you. Uh, within 30 minutes of the show, I went in there on YouTube. I went to your uh, one of your uh, website, and there was beautiful music of this girl singing. It was nice. I like that. Um, the other thing is that I got to tell you, um, uh, let me see something here. Wait a minute. Uh, okay, you're a walk-in. You're a walk-in, uh, Stefan. Yeah, I knew that because I had a near-death experience back in 1959, and uh, I realized that <clears throat> I walked into uh, the child that just got hit by a car who, who nearly died. I came in, so yeah, I agree. <laughs> All right. I know we don't have too much time. How much time we got, Russ? Four minutes? Okay, got it. Uh, I want to tell you something very clear. All right. I'm getting something here. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm getting messages from... We, we, I have a, a mothership above Earth, very large, 125,000. 125, 100, 100, 100, wait a minute. Okay. It's, let's just say it's very large, bigger than the Earth and, and Jupiter together. All right, because we got a new one that arrived here two days ago, and I didn't know about it. Okay. Uh, I, was, I was told by our people that you are one of us. That's why we have so many things in connection. You are one of us. Uh, when you came, you came to Earth. I came. I came. You came. You came in with me on the ship. We are one of us. Uh, I uh, I arrived. I walked in. This body was born in 1953. I came here in 1958. I've said that always. You came on the ship with me. And uh, you mentioned 53, that's the year that I'm born. There you go. All right. So we arrived here in 1958, but um, there was a small, okay, when we arrived to Earth, we come in different uh, dimensions. We start slowing down, like you, like you go up in an elevator into floors, like one, two, three, four, five we start coming down from the top level and start climbing down. When we arrived in the earth uh, in space, we were in the ninth dimension density. 
that's when we arrive here. And it's, it's okay, uh, it says website here. My website is max21d.com. That's my website. Uh, say your website, uh, Stefan. Well, one of my websites is uh, stephansindoni.webs.com or sindonisays.com or hollowearth.webs.com. I've got five different YouTube sites, Sindoni Productions, Webflix Guy, Stephan's World, Sindoni Says, and Lang Sky Guru. My new site's Oh my God. PeerTube.video. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you for all that. <laughs> I, I need you to uh, hang on here. Uh, Russ, can you hold him up after we leave the show? I need to tell him something in private. Okay. Uh, this is the end of the show. I want to thank everyone that uh, was listening to us. It's been a great show and I loved it. Uh, 60 seconds left. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Stephen. Stephen, yeah, it was really great. Thank you, Robert. And not only that, I'll, go ahead. I appreciate you guys having me on tonight. It was a pleasure. I got to speak my truth and uh, share some things with people to realize that we're all connected and we can all elevate this planet and have it ascend and uh, get these powers to be to leave this planet once and for all. And uh, Okay. So happy home. Okay, thank you for being on the show. Just hang on there. I need to tell you something. Everyone, thank you for being here. Uh, I love you all, and we'll, be, we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.